Welcome to Work Better, a Steelcase podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, Editor-in-Chief of Work Better Magazine. Today, we're talking about change makers and how creating positive change in our communities can actually lead to positive change in our organizations. We're going to talk with Kenny Cluett, and he's joining us from Spain, where he's a leader with an organization called Ashoka. And Ashoka's mission is all about mobilizing people to become change makers. And as it turns out, being a change maker can help people and organizations have a better experience at work. After we talk with Kenny, I'm going to be joined by my colleague, Kinga Pakuch, and she's joining us from Munich, where she's a learning consultant at Steelcase. And she's also led a number of community projects through the Steelcase Changemakers Global Program. So stay with us for a valuable perspective from her about how to apply these ideas to the workplace. Thanks for joining us, Kenny. It's a privilege to be here and honor. Ashoka describes its mission like this. Together, we mobilize and accelerate a movement to build a world where everyone is a change maker. And we wanted to talk to you about this notion of everyone being a change maker because it, it really connected with us. And we wondered if being a change maker can also help make our work more meaningful in ultimately better. So Ashoka is based in 80 countries, and Kenny, you're joining us from Spain. Can you start by telling us a little bit more about Ashoka and what your role is there? Yeah, so thank you so much for having me. We describe our vision as a world where everyone is a change maker. So it really is about activating change makers all around the world. And to do this, primarily, what we do is we select, we support, we walk alongside change leaders. And kind of at the core of this, our foundation or what drives us has been selecting what we call fellows. So these are leading social entrepreneurs from all around the world who are solving the world's problems through innovative systemic solutions. These are folks like uh, Mohammed Yunus in Bangladesh who created microloans or Jiro Bin Moria in India who created Childline, a free telephone helpline for children on the street run by children from the street. Or, you know, folks like Jimmy Wales that many of us know, founder of Wikipedia, who revolutionized access to information for all. So that's kind of the, the core is selecting these fellows. And in addition to, to fellows, we also select young social entrepreneurs, what we call um, Ashoka Young Changemakers, changemakers at different stages, even business leaders and companies that are dedicated to improve their changemaking, trying to figure out how do we build this changemakers world together. And with them, sometimes we build thematic-centered initiatives. So my role within Ashoka, I actually lead the selection of these social entrepreneurs in Europe, what we call venture. Okay. Um, that's that's my primary role. And I also uh, do a lot of leadership in areas like DEI or Hello Europe and Hello World, which is our migration initiative. So Kenny, we wanted to talk to you because this idea of using business as a force for good, um, it's commonly accepted by a lot of organizations, but not every organization has really thought about it. And it also feels like organizations and their employees have an opportunity to impact their global community. And I wanted to probe a little bit more about why organizations like business organizations choose to work with Ashoka, because you bring together organizations like Steelcase and other governments or nonprofits to kind of tackle these big systemic issues. Can you talk a little bit about that? Great question. I think there, there's kind of two avenues here or two two reasonings. One is one of the reasons we call the, these leaders social entrepreneurs was because back in the day, we realized when we were analyzing them, the, the people that make change happen, right, at, at large scale, mm -hmm. 
is their core skills and the way they function is a lot like a entrepreneur, like a business entrepreneur, um, except rather than building a company to make money, which is very important for a business entrepreneur. Sure. Um, the, the, their aim is to solve a social problem, right? So that's why it's a social uh, entrepreneur. And I think on, on the one end, that really attracts successful businesses that especially that have innovation at their heart and entrepreneurialism because they understand if you invest in powerful entrepreneurs solving problems, things can really change. So I think that's one of the angles that attracts. I think on the other, you know, at their core businesses should have a function of serving their community. Um, this is a primary aim, right? If, when companies lose this, often they end up losing their bottom line as well. And employees increasingly demand purpose with their work. So I think increasingly, it's not really an option not to think about social issues for companies. What we find is there are certain kinds of companies that don't just want to have a social program or a CSR program. They really start understanding and grasping the passion of what if we could actually make a dent in a social problem? What if we could change something? And that's where we get excited, right? Because it's like, well, how do we activate change makers within your world <laughs> you know, to actually create some of these changes? How do we connect you with some of these important social entrepreneurs around the world? I think that's where some magic starts happening. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. Like if a company is not already engaged in this kind of work, or maybe they are just kind of doing some basics, why would they want to? What is the benefit not only to the organization, but the people within the organization to take part in this kind of work? Yeah, it's a, I mean, I think it depends on the company and, and who their employees are. But what we find a lot is just meeting and spending time with some of these social entrepreneurs creates a certain kind of transformation because so often the way we look at social problems is as problems. That's it. That's we're, And there's big issues that are impossible to solve. It's a political thing or it's education. Yeah. You know, we have these big labels on them. And then we meet someone who says, actually, here's how I got to the root issue and here's how we're solving it. And so often what we find with these social entrepreneurs is when they ask why about six more times than normal people. They get to the root of the problem. And then solutions are like so simple at that level. They're not, of course. It took all this work, but suddenly it kind of inspires you to say, wow, something can actually be done if we if we go to the root, if we look at this. So, so on the one hand, I think there's a huge inspiration factor. And then there's another thing that I find a lot working with different companies like Steelcase and, and others that we've been working with is they constantly say, we want the social entrepreneurship energy into our organization to help us solve stuff. Because there's a way of thinking that breaks barriers, breaks down problems, looks at things from a different angle, figures out how to work with people that we would have never thought we could work with to, to change problems. And that's attractive, not just to employees because they're touching on something new, but also some of the leaders of the organizations because it's helping them to think kind of out of the box in different ways. So it's really interesting in that sense when we bring together these different stakeholders with leading social entrepreneurs, you know, the kind of people we select like fellow, as fellows. There's an inspiration, a rethinking, a collective work that starts happening. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting what you were just saying about social entrepreneurs asking why more often. Like, it, it feels like there's skills to be gathered by working in kind of this new and different way, which is really important right now. Yeah, indeed. I mean, just to add to that, like, we have these lists, right, of what are the skills of change making and all this stuff. But what I find, I, I've just been reading through the profiles of the 40 or so fellows that we've selected over the last two years in Europe, kind of looking for trends. So this is brand new. I was doing this this morning. And I saw two things that were just so interesting just in the last two years. Social entrepreneurs find what these ones are doing. They find new resources or people that are involved in something but aren't considered as resources and activate them as resources for a social problem. So it's like 
you know, we, we have a fellow that's training teachers to, to see the um, education system and how it can be changed and networking them to actually create change. So it's activating teachers as a resource for uh, education reform, not just for teaching, right? For example, or activating students, you know, so there's this activation element that happens. And then there's another thing that we see them doing, which is working with groups of people that you wouldn't have expected would be interested in the problem. We say this a lot, like there's an example of a social entrepreneur wanting to clean the oceans, right? So what you normally do is you do a campaign, a protest and stuff, and that's really, really important. But he realized we have to convince the captains of other ships and we have to convince the companies that work in the ocean to change their practices. They need Mm -hmm. to see that they're part of this. So he starts working with, you know, fishing companies and uh, petrol companies, you know, all these people that we'd consider the enemies of Mm -hmm. any kind of social or climate change issue involving them as key actors within the system. And I think that's something that's just a, they're almost wired differently to think this way. And that brings a lot of value kind of to people who hang out with them. So I always feel sometimes, you know, when you look at all the issues that an organization could possibly decide to tackle, as you said a moment ago, it can feel overwhelming. It can just feel like there's so many things that you don't even know where to start. So I'm just curious how does a leader or how does a, an organization decide what to tackle? Yeah, I've been thinking about this question a bit, and it brought me back to the days when I worked with young social entrepreneurs and change makers. So these are like 12 to 18-year-olds. And the advice mm. we'd give them, I think, is the same advice we should give to the CEOs um, and companies that want to work with this. We say, look, first, think of the issues that make you angry. You know, what ah. makes you angry or sad? Um, mostly mm-hmm. as we get older, it's more anger sadness, I think. (laughs) Uh, What makes you angry? You know, list those issues and then assess the skills and passions you have. You know, maybe the competences or the skills the company has or whatever and see where they connect. And, you know, it sounds like real simplistic advice. And often you have to create a huge process for this in large companies, right? To get the right leaders involved, you know, to identify Mm -hmm. what the company's feeling, et cetera. But when you match those issues we're passionate about with what you're actually good at, stuff starts coming together, right? And you start realizing, okay, we need to bring other people into this or whatever. There's other steps to that, but you realize where your core competence is. And I think that's the shift too, from like a traditional CSR policy where you're supporting something to really making a social change core at your business or at your organization is figuring out where that intersection happens. So you guys are really, uh, really good at building these change-making communities with your fellowship program and et cetera. How do you guys go about building a global community? And why is it better to do that together as opposed to kind of just going it alone and saying, well, I'll just figure this out within my own organization? I think as far as building the community, we've done a lot and we're also learning a lot. One thing we've been talking a lot about within Ashoka is the difference between groups, networks, communities, ecosystems. You know, these are all kind of different types of relationships and you have to address them differently. And sometimes I think we talk about, oh, there's a mm-hmm. community and it's actually a network. There's different engagements. But as we think of kind of our mm-hmm. primary community, right, is these fellows and, and sort of the worlds around them and, and our staff, I would say. And, and, and you know, connected to that as nominators, what we call the Ashoka Support Network. What we focused on is finding people that their change making is kind of wired the same way. So these aren't people that have the same culture because that would be boring, but it would also lower the impact. People from very different backgrounds, very different cultures. Mm-hmm. There's a DI aspect here that, that we could talk about later. But really trying to find people that are kind of wired about how they come, go about change similarly. And that creates magic connections. So we use uh, five criteria, you know, when we select fellows. 
And the same criteria applies to how we select staff or even other members of our community. We talk about new idea. We talk about, so these are people that are innovative, right? Entrepreneurialism, these are people that have a background in creating stuff, not necessarily the standard mm-hmm. entrepreneurial track. You know, maybe they started a newspaper as a child or did something else, but they're used to doing things. Mm-hmm. These are people that are creative and how they think about solving things. Um, and that includes involving new people in the network. They're aimed towards social impact. Mm-hmm. And they have uh, what we call ethical fiber, unquestionable ethical fiber, people that you can trust, right? And these selection processes are long and painful. Yeah. You know, this is what I do in Europe is supervise this. Um, but when you bring those people together, that like a lot of the barriers that you tend to have in networks to build trust, they're already broken. So you can create trust, create partnerships a lot more quickly, kind of across lines. So let's go to the the second part of that question, which is why is it better to do it as part of a community as opposed to kind of going it alone? Yeah, that's a good question. So let me give you an example in the field of migration, which is where a lot of my work has been done. What we found when we started working in the field of migration, working with uh, different social entrepreneurs, we realized, and and the big nonprofits. So these are like, you know, your, your big organizations like UNHCR, IOM, the Red Cross, you know, folks that have done really good work. We talked to the leaders of these different organizations, and everyone kind of had an impression that if they did their work right and everyone else did their work right, things would be solved. We had the privilege of talking to all of them. We realized that's not true. We don't even have the same problem in mind. We haven't even looked at the problem altogether. So we brought a bunch of organizations of these leaders together. We selected Mm -hmm. them, you know, the kind of people that are ready for change, brought them together and spent a whole day just looking at the problem and the Mm -hmm. root of the problem. And there was this moment, you could almost feel it where people suddenly said, oh, that's why nothing's working. <laughs> we need to work with each other because we can't change this. Uh, you know, the government can't mm. do this alone. The Red Cross can't do it. So, you know, there's a theory called the wicked problems or systemic issues or, you know, wh- whenever you look at these theories, what they basically say is that these are complex problems that require multiple perspectives just to figure out what the root causes are and then how to solve them together so most of the problems we're looking at in the social problems or whatever are wicked problems. They're complex problems, and they require people coming together from different backgrounds to look at it. So I think mm-hmm. it's not as much why is it better. It's going alone just doesn't yeah. work. You don't even know what you're solving at times. Yeah. Uh, it feels like there's some parallels for those of us in the corporate world that you know they may be different kinds of wicked problems, but it does feel like we're often dealing with issues that are really complex and we need to be working with a diverse group of people if we're even going to figure out like you know what is the root cause of that and and how do we begin to solve that i want to ask about the part of your mission about everyone being a change maker and and with special emphasis on the everyone part of that and how can we be intentional and how are you guys intentional about making sure that diverse perspectives are included. This is something where we're basically doing an open heart surgery on ourselves and showing it to uh, the sector in many ways. Oh, wow. Because we realized a few years ago, different people realized this in many different ways, but a few years ago, as an organization, we started seeing, you know, even though we started as an organization saying we need to find innovations in communities around the world, connect them, we have or we built like hidden criteria into this that has excluded different people. It could be hidden criteria literally. Like when you're interviewing candidates, there's been times when we've required written 
emails or something. You know, if someone doesn't have access to email, they're excluded from the process, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas well, there might be an amazing innovation that we're missing out on because of that. Or we're not intentionally concentrating on certain communities that have been excluded. Or we're using words that mean something different in different societies. You know, like when you talk about mm-hmm. innovation or entrepreneurship, if you bring that to indigenous communities, those words tend to have very negative feelings. It normally means what white people have done to steal our stuff and sell it elsewhere. Uh-huh. I mean, that's certainly not what we're wanting to say, right? With social entrepreneurship, we have to think, okay, what does it look like in these communities? How do we reevaluate a lot of our criteria? So one of the reasons I work in venture, in particular in, in the search and selection of social entrepreneurs, is because where venture goes in Ashoka, Ashoka follows. So the kind of fellows we select really determine where the organization is going because we look to them for a lot of leadership. So we've been looking very closely at our criteria, the way we communicated, our processes of how we invite people to join in the process, deferring a lot to one-on-one conversations, to going to places where people are, to not asking them about their solution in our boxes, but kind of asking folks to tell us in their terms and try to learn their terms rather than have them adapt to our terms to be able to essentially just select This is kind of the first part of DEI, right, is the diversity select people from communities that have been traditionally excluded, while at the same time, a lot of work that we've done has been internally connecting people in groups and dealing with our unconscious biases, trying to figure out what they are, Mm -hmm. you know, creating spaces where employees can connect with each other and learn resources and kind of talk through stuff. Not as much to change the organization immediately, but to kind of change themselves, right, to figure out how can I be more inclusive And finally, that's also led us to look at a lot of our practices and even the way when we receive funding, how it goes to different places, what does equity look like there? You know, how do we, to use a strong term, how do we decolonize the way we allocate funding? Um, Mm. You know, because we have a really cool function there. We're getting funding from different organizations and companies. And it's a lot of that goes to social entrepreneurs, et cetera. What's the process there? Like, are, are we are we really allowing this to be equitable? What does that look like? So a lot of questions. I don't know if I have many answers, but we're definitely asking ourselves a lot of questions these days. Well, even that is just a, a healthy place to start, to ask those questions and be willing to do the open heart surgery on yourselves, uh, which is tough. You had mentioned earlier, and I wanted to talk more about one of the major initiatives that you're working on. Um, is related to migration and refugees. And I'm wondering how you've been able to scale social innovation to have a larger impact on what feels like such a daunting issue. I'll be brief here, although there's there's a lot we could talk about. But So the, the initiative around migration is called Hello Europe. It started in 2016. In, and it's, it's a unique initiative within Ashoka because it started kind of from the staff saying we have to do something about what's going on. And this was, uh, for, for Europeans, I remember especially 2016, was when a pretty important number of migrants, a very small number compared to other continents, but for Europe, we made a big deal about it. A, a pretty large number of migrants were making their way into Europe, and the systems to receive them were not up to par. Uh, we needed social innovation very quickly. So the first thing we did, and this is kind of the, the let's say, the first leg of, of the three of Hello Europe and Hello World, was to say, rather than saying, okay, let's see what innovation emerges, we said, well, let's look around the world, see where the best innovations to some of the issues that are emerging are, and scale them to Europe. So we, we identified 150 fellows and many other organizations around the world that were doing great work. 
And we selected a bunch and invited them to scale to Europe, connecting them with partners here to funding and resources so that they could scale their impact. So that's the first thing that, that we realized is in the social sector, we need more scaling mechanisms. Just like mm-hmm. a company very quickly scales, there's consultants, there's all kinds of resources to scale your company to a new city. In the social sector, it's a bit more complex. And then the second piece we realized there has to do with what we've been talking about, multi-stakeholders. We realized that public policy was a huge issue in migration. You know, and everyone knows this now, I think, but you know how paperwork works and, and what policy is decided, et cetera, and especially in, in Europe. So we, we create a policy unit to connect social entrepreneurs and their solutions with policymakers, or what we call policy change makers, because there are change makers in the policy realm, believe it or not. And start creating conversations where people that were on the front lines getting stuff done were connecting with these other folks in the offices trying to figure out how do we turn this into policy. And that created some really interesting relationships that's now led us to some other pieces. I'd say the third piece that was kind of indicting for us, to be honest, was as we did this, we realized the majority of social entrepreneurs we were immediately supporting or looked to or whatever looked quite white and quite European to receive migrants, right? And, and there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong about someone white and European wanting to, to help mm-hmm. or to welcome intentionally migrants. But we realized, you know, this thing we say that everyone a change maker, that everyone piece, we need to figure out how this fits into this. So we started mapping and really looking into and questioning ourselves and even our hiring practices and stuff about how can we live out every migrant a change maker? Like, what would that look like? It was fascinating, right? Because when we looked at statistics, we realized that when during the 2016-17 arrival of migrants, entrepreneurship in Europe skyrocketed. Not just because migrants were entrepreneurial, but also because they inspired other inspirations. Like this is like literally change making coming to us, bringing new solutions. You know, so they're like, how do we speak about this? How do we bring this to the surface? How do we move out of the way so that a lot of the narrative becomes migrant led? And that's been quite an adventure trying to figure out how do we shift our practices. It's led us to look at Ashoka globally, adventure, how we select social entrepreneurs. And when we launched Hola America, so this is our like Hello Europe work in Latin America, it started with that sort of as a premise and it's been a completely different story, basically identifying, activating, recognizing migrant entrepreneurship across the continent. That has been really, really powerful because just change making, when you think of change making, it's kind of two aspects one is the skills to change, you know, to be a change maker. There's certain kind of leadership skills, connecting with people, empathy, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But the other is the confidence and being given permission to do that and platform to do that. And so that was something we, we realized we can spend, like we have all these people that are change makers. They're investing their lives in new communities, whether they're refugees, whether it was forced, whether it's, you know, it doesn't matter when people move, change making happens and it has to happen. So how do we lift them up? How do we create a platform? How do we give them voice? How do we move out of the way? You know, how do we change that discourse? So that's a lot of what we're thinking about now. And and of course, that goes back to us to say, well, who's actually leading these initiatives? Do we have migrant background leaders within our organization? Sure. And are they leading this? How do we how do we get them on board, et cetera? That's sure. been quite a quite an adventure. And there's a lot more going on there, but uh, that, that's sort of the, the essence. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You know, it feels like right now we're at a time uh, there have been so many studies that are talking about decreasing levels of trust across the board, whether it's trust in government organizations, trust in employers, trust between one another as human beings. I'm just wondering if all of the work that Ashoka and other change-making organizations are doing, is that one way to help build a sense of connectedness between people? 
Yes, <laughs> short answer. I mean, what what we find is kind of two things, like entrepreneurial skills, right? Looking at the roots that underlie the problem, suddenly things get a little simpler. Mm. They, they get less messy because like, okay, there's something going on here that's not your fault. You know, it's it, it's a little deeper. And the second thing that we found is when you look at it from a solutions lens, a change making lens, there's hope. You know, in those conversations mm-hmm. versus just a stalemate. And of course, there's people that don't want to participate in those conversations. That you know, that's fine. But those that do, when you select the right people that actually want to create a change, some of that magic of trust building starts happening. And that gives me a lot of hope. Right now, we're building these things called ecosystem accelerators within the, the mm. migration initiative, where we bring together different stakeholders to do precisely that with the social entrepreneur kind of leading it with that energy of relentless optimism and seeking solutions. Mm-hmm. And, and we're finding that that trust is being rebuilt in many ways. Mm. Well, that's an interesting thing for organizations and business leaders to think about. And we are speaking to business leaders today. So before I let you go, Kenny, I, I would just like to know, like, what would be your message to them? I think um, is let change happen. A lot of conversations I've had with business leaders, there's a fear of losing control or letting employees have the freedom to carry out the crazy ideas they often have. (laughs) Mm. And I think if they're able to create the channels and the spaces and the resources for a lot of those crazy ideas to actually happen, for that change-making energy to be released through the organization, especially from what we'd often call the margins, right, or people that normally haven't been at the center, the results are going to be very surprising. Not only that employees will probably perform better, which is a you know it's a valid concern, but also your company is going to come into completely new areas of innovation. So I think losing that fear and creating spaces where innovation and change making can happen is a game changer for companies and those that do it will thrive and those that don't probably won't. Well, I think that's a really good message for us to wrap on today. So I really appreciate you being here with us today. And thank you so much for all the insights about what you've learned and what Ashoka has learned in your process of change making. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So welcome to Kinga Pakuch, who joins us from the Steelcase Learning and Innovation Center in Munich. And Kinga is a learning consultant in our learning and development team And before relocating to Munich, she was based in Cluj, Romania, and she has led community projects throughout the Steelcase Changemakers Global Program. We'll talk a little bit more about that, as well as DEI initiatives within the company. So thanks for joining me, Kinga. Thanks, Chris. Very happy to be here. Well, I really appreciate you you being here. And I'm curious to get your perspective about how do you see organizations being more willing to think about and actually take action on social issues? So um, I can definitely see a sort of heightened sensitivity towards social issues and even a form of consciousness within organizations about the role they play in the world and and who they serve beyond their shareholders. Um, And this is not a new thing, but I think it has been accentuated by the importance that companies have placed on their culture. Mm. So 
which essentially meant they were listening to their employees. And it became increasingly obvious, as, as Kenny pointed out, that people demand this sense of purpose. So organizations are sort of acknowledging that social issues are not outside their doors, so the realm of nonprofits or public policy, but they're very much present in the hearts and minds of, of people walking through those doors every day, showing up for work. Um, and I completely agree with Kenny that organizations can no longer ignore social issues and community needs. And, mm-hmm. so, you know, some organizations are leading, so they're making community impact a part of their strategy. Some maybe not so much, but the more they infuse this in their strategy, the more they have to gain. Employees stay longer with the company and they will see their work as being more purposeful and making a positive impact. I'm curious about what are some of the things that you've been a part of um, that could inspire other organizations, Kinga? Um, so throughout my, my years at Steelcase, I've always seen uh, this focus on community impact. And, and what I love about it is that we have a global strategy of engaging with the community, but the, the real magic happens at a local level where employees are empowered to really implement that strategy and engage with local communities and nonprofits. And there's two examples that come to mind um, of projects that I've been involved in in Romania. The first one is a youth empowerment empowerment camp uh, where Steelcase employees engage in a week-long conversation and series of workshops with teenagers from rural, under-resourced communities in Romania. They address topics like self-confidence and gender equity and really the need of teenagers to break gender normativity and really have their voices heard was what led to this project. Um, So over 150 colleagues have been engaged in this project um, in the last seven years. Even uh, our CEO joined the conversation this year. And and this project has been so impactful in so many ways, but the dialogue between the employees and the teenagers is the really transformational part. And it has changed my life personally and my life professionally. Um, I've learned to engage in new ways with these colleagues. And it really, in 2016, when when we started this project with a small prototype, we wouldn't have dreamt of where it leads. And Mm -hmm. a second example that I'm thinking about is a bit different, um, is the activities that we've done during Pride Month this year. So that project came about as a result of the lived experiences of our employees in Cluj, and I was one of them. Mm -hmm. So um, LGBTQ rights are rarely a topic discussed in companies in Romania, Mm. and identities that are outside the norm don't really have a place or a voice in in companies. Mm -hmm. So we formed a team and put together a calendar of activities for our office during Pride Month. And not only did we sponsor as a company the Pride March, but the transformational part was the discussions that we had internally with our colleagues and the community about allyship, about intersectionality, and about lived identities. So that work reminds me of what Kenny was talking about in terms of the skills of change making, um, because it really is a, a skill set to be a change maker. And I'm curious, like what advice you would offer to organizations who want to apply kind of the, the notion of change making to the work that they're doing? And like, how can we achieve the kind of scale that Kenny was talking about? I think when organizations allow 
employees to show up as their full selves. So people are mm. so much more than their job description. And organizations are so much more than a series of processes. So it's about allowing people to express their their values, to express their interests, and to really uh, allow that platform for conversation and community engagement. When companies allow for curiosity and allow for collaboration outside of the you know traditional functional lines i think that's where um you know one thing leads to another if organizations do not allow their employees to you know explore outside the realm of their job they're never going to know what that, that they're lying on a on a breadth of capability and of skills sometimes employees don't know it either uh, i can give you a, a very concrete example um when we were designing the camps, COVID hit and we had to pivot in two weeks. We had to transfer a full physical camp into an online environment. Did we know that we had the skills and the agility to do that in two weeks? We found out afterwards when we did it. So we learned by having this common purpose and through experiential learning. But the company also allowed us the, the platform to do so and also the, uh, the mandate to make mistakes. <laughs> I, I loved what you were saying about work being more than just a, a series of processes. And, you know, we think a lot in this podcast about how to make work better. So I'm curious what your thoughts are, Kinga, about how does supporting and activating change makers actually help work be better? I think, uh, and looking back at my experience and the colleagues that I've worked with, I think the, the biggest thing that you unlock through community building and organizations is the relationships between people. So when you engage in a community project or when you engage in a cross-functional project with your colleagues, you create new relationships, like genuine ones. You meet people from other teams with whom you'd normally not come across during your work hours, and you find out that you share the same passion. Then you transfer some of the things in, in your work. Um, so you unlock that experiential learning that comes in an organic way. It's not, and me as a learning consultant, you know, th there is no perfect learning path. There is no perfect training. There is no perfect workshop. But the more I can encourage people to apply whatever they learn to their work, that's when people start to grow and become their best selves. And when you manage to, to find that sweet spot between work and purposeful community engagement, when the two meet, skill building happens almost organically, almost without people kind of realizing it. More so, a lot of the times when we look at a community project, we, we look back and we review it and we realize how much we've evolved and how um, you know, we created those bridges throughout the company. That is such an important point that we try and find that that sweet spot, as you said, you know, between purpose and bringing that to work. I really appreciate you taking some time to come and talk with me. So thanks for joining us today, Kinga. And thank you for your work on the Steelcase Global Changemakers program. It, it really is making an impact. Thank you, Chris, for the conversation. 
So for our audience, thank you for being here with us for this episode in this season of Work Better. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at steelcase.com slash subscribe to sign up for weekly updates on research insights and design ideas delivered to your inbox. We'd also really appreciate it if you would rate or review the podcast so it can help other people find it. So this is the end of our first season of Work Better. It has been so much fun and so fascinating to have these great conversations. So if you missed any of them, we encourage you to go back and seek them out. We've talked about the neuroscience of community, groupiness at work, being more human in the AI age, and so much more. Please make sure you uh, get a chance to check out the whole season. Thanks again for being here. And we hope your day at work tomorrow is just a little bit better. This episode of Work Better is produced by Rebecca Cherbowski. Creative art direction is by Aaron Ellison and Emily Cowdery. Technical support is from Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez. Digital publishing is by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks. And editing and sound mixing by Soundpost Studios.